Hey, glad you're here. We're talking about Jesus. Um, and we just finished the last three weeks in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 doing the Sermon on the Mount. And for those that are guests here, we have a lot of guests here today. For those of you that have been here the last three weeks, just explain as briefly as you can how you would describe in the manner that we've taught over the last three weeks what the Sermon on the Mount is. Anybody? What? It's not for us. It points to the cross, the cross that is yet to come. He hadn't got to the cross yet, but it is pointing to the cross. What else? Yes. An unreachable level of law. The Pharisees had the Mishnah, which was all the laws they added to God's laws because they didn't think God's laws could save them. It wasn't enough to keep them from sinning. So they made more laws, just like we do today in our country. We just keep making more laws to protect us. They kept doing that. And Jesus says, whatever they've told you, I can double that. I just want you to, I just want to prove that you can't live up to the law. That was the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of crazy because it's red letters, it's Jesus speaking, and as a church, we've always taken what Jesus has said and said, this is how we're supposed to live our life. But you forget that one, Jesus was a Jew, and that Jesus grew up under the law, he knew the law better than the Pharisees, and we're talking about God's law, not man's oral law that they made up. And he fulfilled completely the law. He, everything that he did was according to the law of God. Never outside of it. He healed on the Sabbath, but that wasn't God's law to not do that. That was man's law to not do that. And so Jesus fulfilled all this to say, look, I do this for you because we've proven from Genesis chapter 3 that you can't do this. He gave them one rule, went to 10 commandments, went to 613 laws in Leviticus, went to the Sermon on the Mount and doubled down on everything and said, you can't do this. I'll do it for you. I'll go to the cross. And when I die, I'll be buried, I'll raise again, I'll sit with the Father at the right hand of the Father and we're going to send our spirit to come take residence up inside of your mortal bodies. And you can continue to walk in your flesh and try to live up to the standards of the law or you can resign to the fact that I am your Lord, the boss of your life, and I will do this for you. And so my struggle every day is to do less of the flesh, my, my own self-righteousness and effort versus walking in the Spirit and the Spirit doing for me. As I get older and I fall more in love with my Savior, the one who has done this for me, I'm watching my behavior begin to line up with who I truly am. That I am in Christ. 
And that, my friends, is the adventure and the excitement that I will continue to teach about every Sunday. We pick up in Matthew chapter 8, and we also can parallel Matthew chapter 8 with Luke chapter 7. So we'll kind of go back and forth between Matthew and Luke. And let me say this about the two. Luke is a doctor, and he's very, very particular. Like if you're going to look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at Luke's, you know that that dude was pretty precise about what happened. Matthew, he's writing to the Jews because, well, he is a Jew, and he's more dramatic. He tells the story from a little different angle and puts the drama inside of it where Luke pretty much gives you the facts. So keep that in mind as we process this today. Remember, we just came out of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount took place up near the north part of the Sea of Galilee, and I'll show you a map here in just a second. If you go with me to Israel, you'll stand right there where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And then it says in Matthew chapter 8, when he entered Capernaum, this was really his headquarters you know he grew up in Nazareth he couldn't really like do what he did in Jerusalem because the Pharisees controlled that area and they all hated him and probably wanted to kill him maybe not at this point but they're getting there and so it says when he entered Capernaum a centurion a centurion was a Roman official that was literally in charge of over 100 soldiers He had authority over 100, let me say this, men. It was men. He had authority over 100 men. And I find it interesting that as these Gospels mention uh, centurions, which are Gentiles, they're from the Roman government, they're not Jewish. But as we look throughout Scripture and we see that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about centurions. Uh, And even in Acts, they're always gentlemen of very high character. And they have this sense of duty. And this man right here was really no exception. It says, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed in terrible agony. Now, I said that Matthew and Luke tell the same story, but Luke kind of tells it from a different perspective. Luke, the doctor, describes the slave as being sick and near death. If you've got Matthew who's dramatic and you've got Luke who's a doctor and he says that he's sick and near death, I'm probably going to believe Luke that he really is about to die. That he's laying there on the edge of death. And in Luke, he says that the centurion calls this slave, this servant, highly valued. Like I'm assuming that this man, this slave, was so important to this centurion that he obviously wanted to do everything that he could to save his life. 
And he's hearing these stories about this rabbi that's going around and people are getting healed and demons are being cast out. And he's even healed a leper, a Jewish leper. Like, that's never been done before. Not in the scripture anyway. And so he's like, I'm going to take a chance of this Messiah, this Savior, and see if he can save my servant that I highly value. Now, Matthew says the centurion went to Jesus and faced Jesus. And Luke says the centurion sent his Jewish elders. That would make sense. Like if you want a Jewish rabbi to heal your slave, wouldn't you send somebody that probably has connections with them rather than a Roman official? So Luke literally says, He sent elders ahead to make this plea with Jesus. Please come save my servant. Luke says the soldiers sent Jewish elders to request his presence. And then Jesus says, well, well, sure, I'll come do this. And Jesus is making his way. And then we see that Matthew says that the centurion went out and told Jesus, no, 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 don't bother. But it says Luke sent out these same elders and says, hey, we respect who you are, and I realize that I'm just a Roman soldier, so really there's no need for you to come here. Like He sends for him, but then as Jesus gets near to him, but not quite there, he stopped. And here's what else we know that Luke says. This centurion, he's a friend to the Jews. It says that in the Luke passage. Luke mentions this. This soldier loves the Jewish nation. And we're not talking about geographically. We're talking about the people, the Jews. So much that it says he even built them a synagogue a place where they could go and worship and they didn't have to go to Jerusalem to go to the temple. It says this, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. Jesus says to him, I'll come and heal him. He told him, Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy. (laughs) I'm not worthy. I even heard that today. I'm not worthy in here. You are worthy. This centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only only say the word and my servant will be cured. Like, I know I've heard about you. I've heard about you. You've done incredible things. Really, you don't need to come into my Roman home. All you need to do is just say, he's healed. That's crazy. Do you get that? This, he's not even a Jew. Jesus came for the Jews. And this Roman centurion believes in Jesus so much as a healer that he says, just say it. Just say it. Yeah. I get it. You, you don't have to come to my place. I don't want everybody to be to offend people because you come to a Roman place. 
He says, for I too am a man under authority. Not only is he over a hundred Roman soldiers, but he's under the authority of King Herod Antipas. He says, for I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Just as Luke described, he said, go and get Jesus and bring him back here to heal him. He gets what it means to give commandments and for them to be obeyed. And all of a sudden, it would seem, it would seem here that everything about this man would prevent him from coming to Jesus. I mean, he is a professional soldier. And Jesus is this man of peace. This Roman centurion was a Gentile. And Jesus was a Jew. It seems like everything would keep him from coming to Jesus. But this soldier had one thing working for him. (laughs) He was a man, obviously, of great faith. This centurion understood that Jesus, like himself, was under authority. In other words, he knew that it wasn't Jesus that was doing this, that it was God that was doing this. That Jesus was here under the authority of his Father. That, my friends, is incredible wisdom. All Christ had to do was speak the word and the disease would obey him the exact way this centurion soldiers obeyed him. It's uh, worth noting right here that only those who are under authority have the right to exercise authority. Just think about that for a second. In verse 10 it says this. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. You know, I've said throughout this whole series that this is Jesus not only teaching love and showing that he's a servant, he comes to serve, but he's really come to rile up the Pharisees. And what better way is to stick a statement in here to say this Gentile soldier has greater faith than anybody I've seen in Israel. There's just a little jab there. Just a statement. And I I find it intriguing that it says Jesus was amazed. Jesus was amazed. It says that like three times in the scripture. By the faith of this centurion, he's amazed, one. And then if you look at Mark 6, 6, it says Jesus was amazed that the Jews would not believe in him. And then there's one other uh, miracle that Jesus did where there was this amazement. 
And it was the healing of the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. That's in Matthew chapter 15, and we'll get there. But in both cases, the Lord was absolutely impressed with their great faith. Now, this is an early, early indication that the Jews would not believe, but the Gentiles would. You see, the three times that Jesus was marveled, was amazed, was when the Gentiles came to faith and that the Jews did not believe. All along, Jesus is saying, it's coming to the Gentiles. I came here to the Jews first. They're going to refuse me. And then it's coming to the Gentiles. And they'll receive me. You'll see this as we progress through the scripture today. Uh, You want to know what's cool in in both of those miracles? (laughs) To indicate that same thought is that our Lord healed from a distance in both of them. He didn't go there and touch either one of those Gentiles. That's a spiritual reminder of where the Gentiles are. They're far off, but they still have access to the Father. That's pretty cool. Verse 11, it says, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west. Now he's talking Gentiles. Israel is the Jewish nation. Those that are in the east and those in the west, they're coming. I tell you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In reference to the many Gentiles that will come to faith in Jesus, as the Jews, their forefathers, these are their main their main men of their faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is saying, the Gentiles are going to sit down and have a feast with them. It's all talked about in Revelation. There's going to be a great feast. And the Gentiles are going to be hanging out with those three Jewish men. It's going to be amazing. Those three Jewish men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they believed in the Messiah that was to come. That being Jesus. Verse 12 it says, But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about the Jews who don't believe. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're talking about after the great white throne judgment. Not a judgment that we, the believers, will face, but the unbelievers will face, and they'll be cast away. Not to hell. Hell is a temporary holding place for those who are unbelievers. But now we're talking in prophecy in the future, and they'll be cast into this darkness. Where he says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This darkness is absolutely void of God. When there's no God, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that would be forever. And it's all because they chose not to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It says, Then Jesus told the centurion, (laughs) Go, 
as you have believed, let it be done for you. And the servants that were there in Luke, it says, go back home. It's a done deal. He's healed. And his servant was cured that very moment. When those servants went back, Luke says, he was healed. Jesus just spoke it, and it was done. That parallels Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So then we pick up in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. It said, soon afterwards, he was on his way to a town called Nain. Let me show you this map real quick. Uh, this isn't. Uh, this is all Israel, real big. This is the Sea of Galilee, that's at the top. If you come down the Jordan River down here, and down here is the Dead Sea down here. All right. So Capernaum is right here. This is Jesus' headquarters where he did most of his ministry. The Mount of Beatitudes is right up here in this area. And then you come over here and you come down here and you see Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up as a child and he spent many years in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And then Nain is right here. Today it's called the city of Nine or Nin. This is 14 kilometers from Nazareth to Nin, to Nain. That's 8.6 miles for you. It's about 25 miles from Capernaum. So Jesus makes his way... 25, 30 miles down to Nain. That's a full day's journey. It's a full day's walk. He says, soon afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Can you imagine what that was like? You got, you guys, we got friends that follow uh, musicians all over the I know you go you follow mercy me well uh you have friends that follow musicians all around it's it's kind of, it's kind of interesting they just flock to them but uh it's I was looking last night how many of y'all were like at music stuff it's just kind of kind of crazy but uh it, it's kind of the same way that Jesus just has these fanatical fans that are like following him and so he's got this group that's traveled 25. Well, let's walk with him. I want to see what else he's going to do. He's doing, been doing some pretty amazing things. It says disciples in a large crowd were traveling with him. And it even just says that Jesus had about 100 disciples following him all the time. He had the 12, but he also had 100 more. It says just as he neared the gate of the town of Nain, a dead man was being carried out. They always took their dead people and buried them outside of the city walls because there was this ritual cleanliness that they wanted to have in the city. So now this man has died, and he's got this whole family. It's, it's kind of like taking them after you've had memorial service, and you take them out to the grave, and you bury them, and everybody goes out there, and they have a, a little service outside. So... Now you've got two crowds. You've got Jesus' crowd, who's all ecstatic, joyful, and praising Him and everything else and calling Him Savior. And then you've got this other crowd where they're mourning over someone that's dead. These two crowds come together. It says, just as He neared the gate of the town, the dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. You know what that says? 
She had no husband to provide for. So then she became dependent upon her only son to provide for her. Now she doesn't have her only son to provide for her. She has no means of taking care of herself. A large crowd from the city was also with her. Two different crowds. Two sons meet. Two only sons meet. One alive, one dead. One getting ready to face life, one getting ready to face death. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't cry. It's a lot easier said than done, right? Don't cry. Then he came up and he touched the open coffin. Just touched the coffin. And the pallbearer stopped. They probably dropped him. And he said, young man, I tell you, Get up. Now, there had to be this, just this instant of, of unbelief and doubt in the crowd, right? You're sitting there watching Jesus, and he's done some pretty amazing things, that one group that's fallen, but then there's another group that's fallen, this dead man. And he says, young man, I tell you, get up. I don't know how quick that dude popped up, but there had to have been a moment like, can this really happen? Can he really do this? Does he have the power to do that? We've never seen a dead man come to life before. And guess what? He popped up. That's freaky. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? You're mourning. You're mourning. You know they're gone for good. And Jesus just touches that coffin and he's like, What's for breakfast? <laughs> I mean, that's weird. It says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. I have no idea what he said. Wow. Wow, that was a trip. <laughs> wow. And Jesus gave him to his mother, like literally... He probably reached down and took him by the hand and helped him step out of that coffin and put him in his mother's hand. He had sympathy for this widow. Don't cry. He'll take care of you. I bet that young man took care of his mom. It says, then fear came over everyone. <laughs> They went home and did their laundry. <laughs> Fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying, A great prophet. What? <laughs> A great prophet. You can't even recognize him as the Messiah. What else does he have to do? He's just a prophet. Really? Yeah, he's a prophet, but 
Look what he just did. You're going to call him just a prophet? This dude's sitting here saying, I'm the son of God. I came here and everything I do is in the power of God. Watch this. Get up. And you're going to call him a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. It says, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. <laughs> Verse 17, it says, this report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. I guarantee you it did. Jesus raised this man from the dead. It made it to Jerusalem in a day and a half. And now all these Pharisees are going, what? Really? We've never done that. Could he be the Messiah? Verse 18. And this parallels Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 19. But Luke's a little bit more precise here. He says, then John's disciples told him about all these things. It literally goes from (laughs) Jesus raising this man from the dead to John, who's in prison. Remember this? John the Baptist. Matthew actually says that John's in prison. John the Baptist is in prison. Why? Because he called out King Herod for marrying his brother's wife. So King Herod put John the Baptist in prison, and John the Baptist is just sitting there in prison waiting. And his disciples keep coming to him telling the story. Wait till you hear this story. We got to go tell John the Baptist what Jesus did. It's amazing. So we jump to 18. It says, then the disciples, John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, Okay, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? The disciples just told John the Baptist that he raised somebody from the dead. Theologians are sitting here saying that that translated as John's got doubt. I sit there and go, I know John John had to have affirmation about his calling and preparing the way for Jesus to come. That was his whole ministry. And clearly, John the Baptist was there when Jesus was there and this dove descended down and a voice said, this is my, this is my son, my beloved son. Are you telling me that John's sitting there in prison having doubt? Possibly. We said it last week. We talked about I think Bogdan said it last week. Talked about that doubt that like creeps in. I... Hey, I get it. Sometimes even I doubt. But John the Baptist is sitting in prison all alone. So is it John's doubt that's spurring this question? Or is he trying to spur Jesus on like, let's get this party going? Are you the one? If you're the one, let's get this thing going. Make this thing happen. I don't know what he's doing there. Or maybe John's just sitting in prison saying, hey, you came to set the captives free. I'm sitting here in prison. Do something about getting me out of here. I don't know. Maybe John's just being a little self-focused right there. Something's going on with John the Baptist. It says, 
At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many blind people. And he replied to them. These are the disciples, John's disciples that came to him and go, What's the deal? Are you really him? Are you the Messiah? Jesus says to him, Go and report to John the things that you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with skin diseases are healed. That'll get them. That'll convince them. Like the lepers are even being healed. The deaf are going to hear. They're hearing now. And even the dead will be raised. John. And the poor, the poor told the good news. You see, the Pharisees, it was all about money. And it was all about being wealthy. And they wanted the wealthy people to be successful. They wanted the wealthy people to go to heaven. They didn't care about the poor people. Jesus came to the poor. The poor hearing the good news. And anyone who is not offended because of me is blessed. I love it. That offended word gets overused way too much today. Verse 24, it says, After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. So John's disciples walk back and say, John, yeah, he's doing some amazing things. He says he's the one. Jesus starts talking about John, and this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool for you in the room right here. It says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Talking about John here. A reed swaying in the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft robes? Look, you had to know John the Baptist. He was this wild. He wore animal skins and he ate locusts and honey and just described as a hairy man. Just, Just, you know, just... This guy that lived outside, kind of rough. Jesus is like, did you expect him to be dressed in soft robes? <laughs> Jesus really did have some humor. He says, look, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal places. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet. This is the one it is written about. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's like, all you guys went out to find John, this wild man with this wild message, and John's sitting here telling you that I've come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Get ready, he's coming. And all of y'all believe John. He said, this is what was written about. In the Old Testament, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. And Jesus says, I tell you, among these born of women, no one is greater than John. Jesus is sitting here saying, anybody that's born before the cross, born right now, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Like, you want to rank them? You want to put Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, 
David, Daniel. You want to put all them? There ain't anybody as greater than John the Baptist. I know what you're laughing about over here. There ain't anybody greater than him. And then he says this. Watch this. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. <laughs> who's, the, who's, who's the least in the kingdom of God? Listen to this. This is the kingdom of God. And you take the least, the least one in the kingdom of God, whoever it is, I don't know, there ain't no least. He loves us all. It's the same. But whoever is the least in here, that being me, that being me, says, you're greater than John the Baptist. What? What? You just said John the Baptist is like the greatest of all the Old Testament people. Greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And you're going to say the least in the kingdom, the least in those that believe in Jesus as the Messiah are greater than John the Baptist. You know why? Because John the Baptist never had a holy living God inside of him. Holy cow, you, you guys are sitting here in this room and you've got a holy living God inside of you and you just sit here like, yep, this is what we do every Sunday. <laughs> it's that whole thing, Matt, when we're sitting around the campfire someday. John the Baptist, hey John, tell us some great stories about the time you busted King Herod. Daniel, tell us about that time that you're in the lion's den, got shut in there for a night. Daniel tells that story. Samson, what was it like to have that strength? David, remember that time you chopped off Goliath's head? Oh, yeah, that's a good story. Let me tell you that one. And then they all look at you and go, so our stories are pretty cool. But tell us about what it was like to walk here on the face of the earth with God inside of you. And we all look at everybody and go, uh, really? Jesus says, you're greater than John the Baptist. You're greater than John the Baptist. Verse 29, it says, and when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they, including the tax collectors, My tax collector friend, I don't see him today. Is he in here? Uh, we have one, and I love him dearly. Uh, when all the people, including tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. Remember, baptism in those days identified you with the person and their ministry. And John's ministry was to prepare the way for the Lord. So even though they were baptized under John's identification, they later were baptized under Jesus being the Savior, the Messiah. But at this point, they had been baptized by John. It says, but since the Pharisees and the experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. The Pharisees 
and those that had written the laws, the scribes, all refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 31, it says, To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you. We healed lepers. But you didn't dance. You didn't believe. We sang a lament. We raised people from the dead. But you chose not to believe. You didn't even weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. You say, he has a demon. He comes from Beelzebub. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. You know, there was a saying back then that said, A teaching is shown to be wise based upon what it produces. That was all Jesus had to do. He just kept producing and producing and producing. Pharisees just kept writing laws and laws and laws. Now look, here's the situation. Pharisees were the leaders of the Jews. They were the ones that were telling everybody else what to believe. Everybody looked to them to say, is he the Messiah or not the Messiah? These Pharisees were going to make that decision. The jury's still out. Are you kidding me? Yep, still out. Are you kidding me? Look, I'm thankful that I'm after the cross. I'm thankful that I'm able to see this. I don't boast about I don't boast about what I teach, what I know. I boast about what God has done in me. And I am thankful for what he has done in me. That he has made me holy, that he has redeemed me, that he has forgiven me, that he has cleansed me, that he has made me perfect. That's who I am. I understand that. I get that. And that's what I live out. It's all based upon what I believe and what I trust. I pray that you're able to trust the same. By the way, you're blessed. Father, I thank you uh, for your holy word. I thank you for the incredible life of Jesus. Uh, Just uh, as we saw his mercy for this mother as we saw his boldness as he speaks out against the Pharisees, the strong, the strength that he displays in his words, his wisdom. He's the, uh, he's the ultimate model for us. And so, Lord, I pray that every day that I can learn more and more what it means to walk by your spirit that resides in me. May you take control of my life. May you put aside my flesh. Lord, I count on you to do that in me and in my friends and family right here. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.